morning is we, we're going to put a bow on the first half of the book of Genesis, and we'll soon see that the story crescendos into quite a climax. For, ch- for 21 chapters now, we have observed this re- recurring cyclical pattern whereby God graciously provides for humanity, but we in our sin reject God's goodness in favor of our own ways, and yet God in his mercy gives us yet more grace. We saw it with Adam and Eve. God created the perfect garden for them, but they chose the forbidden fruit instead, and yet God mercifully spared their lives. We saw it with Cain. God gave sacrifice as a way for sinful man to be reconciled to him, but Cain polluted his sacrifice with envy and pride and murder, and yet God spared his life too. And so God raised up a line from Seth, but Seth's descendants soon became just as sinful as Cain's. By chapter 6, the world was filled with sin again, and yet God preserved mankind through righteous Noah. God rescued Noah from the flood, but within a chapter of stepping off the ark, Noah got drunk, he invoked a curse on his own progeny, And yet, God continued to remain faithful. And for the last 11 chapters, we've seen God's faithfulness in the same pattern hold true time and time again in the life of Abraham. Specifically, God graciously chose and called Abraham. Abraham doubted and lied and betrayed his own wife to save his own skin. And yet, God redemptively used even Abraham's failure to bless him, to make him prosperous and wealthy. God promised Abraham an heir. Abraham instead took matters in his own hands. He slept with Hagar, but God redemptively, again, used it to bless him with even more offspring. God brings Abraham into the promised land again. Abraham fears again. He lies again. He he gives his wife away again, and yet God redemptively used it again to establish Abraham in the land. And last week, God graciously delivered his long-awaited heir, Isaac, but Sarah got insecure banished Hagar and Ishmael from camp, and yet God intervened to rescue them. If you want hope, if you want encouragement, this is the God we serve, brothers and sisters, a gracious provider who gives us good gifts we don't deserve. Our God is a loving, patient Father who bears with us in our sinful rebellion against Him. He is a merciful Redeemer, who uses even our worst failures to bring about his own good purposes and his own good promises in our lives. And this morning, we were going to see God's grace and mercy on display like never before in the book of Genesis. And there are two important theological truths that we need to see about God here in Genesis chapter 22 that ought to inspire two important responses from us. This is your outline for the morning. Two theological indicatives, statements about God that drive these two ethical imperatives, commands for us. Number one, that we're going to spend the bulk of this morning's message on because the primary theme of the passage is that God tests us to which we ought to respond by trusting God. God tests we trust. And number two, that we're going to conclude with at the end of this morning is God provides for us, to which we ought to respond by looking to Jesus. God provides, we look to Jesus. So let's begin by reading 
the passage together, Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19. If you want to flip there in your Bibles, and if you would stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word together, I'll read it aloud for us from the ESV. The words will be on your screen, up in front, on your screens there at home, if you want to follow along. Hear the Word of the Lord. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, who you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son said, Behold, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled before such a powerful, powerful passage this morning, such a powerful prefiguring of what you would do for us on that hill 2,000 years ago. God, would you help us to see Jesus this morning? 
to see your call to faith. We need to, to see your call to action, our call to, to respond, to believe you, to trust you. But Father, more than anything, we need to see that we will fall short of that call to faithfulness and we stand in need of a Savior. Father, help us to see him this morning. Help us to know him more deeply this morning and to know your love for us made manifest in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Theological indicative number one the main idea of this passage is that God tests us. Ethical imperative number one, the take-home application point from that for us is that we must trust in God. And challenging question number one to help us really get at the heart of God's test for us personally here is what do you love most in life? That's sort of the, the gut check question for us. What do you love most? most in this life. When I was in middle school, I was obsessed with cars. I would spend hours browsing car magazines, researching and comparing specs, watching videos online. And so my mom saw an opportunity to take advantage of my passion and with in an effort to protect my purity, she made a deal with me. She said if I could make it all the way to my high school graduation without kissing a girl, that she would buy me any car I wanted. And for years, it was looking like a sure bet for me. <laughs> it's very awkward and shy around girls, but then spring term of my junior year, with just a year left to go in the bet, I found out through the grapevine that the girl who I had had a cr secret crush on since freshman year secretly had a crush on me. So I finally worked up the courage to ask her out on a date. My first date and then another date where I worked up the courage to hold her hand and then another date this time I gave her a hug at the end of the evening and then I asked her to prom yes prom and at the end of a night filled with enchantment under the sea and awkward slow dancing and raging teenage hormones I asked her like a gentleman if I could kiss her and as we both leaned in, and time seemed to stand still, just before our lips touched, she pulled back and said, wait, I heard about your mom's offer. Are you sure you want to go through with this? And for a split second, the thought crossed my mind, is it worth it? And what if my mom paid her off? How did she find out about the bet? What if this is part of my mom's ploy to save herself? But then I decided, I don't even care. I just want to kiss you. It's like an epic romantic comedy type moment. The costliest kiss of my life. But here's the point. The point is that love is very difficult, maybe even impossible, some people say, to extinguish from the human heart. I think it really has to be replaced by another stronger love. I loved cars, but then I went through puberty, and I loved the idea of kissing girls more. 
I heard a friend say once when a guy hits 30, he has to decide what he wants more, washboard abs or beer, because you can't have both after 30. Ladies, for you, maybe it's dessert or your waistline. I don't know. I get myself in trouble speculating about such things. But listen, the reality is whether we realize it or not, our lives are filled every day with hundreds upon hundreds of decisions, both small and large, that will test our answer to that question. What do I love most? Cars or kisses? Beer or abs? Ice cream or fitting into that dress? And some of those decisions are much, much weightier. No pun intended. For, for instance, this is why consistent devotional time with the Lord is so difficult for so many Christians because we love to sleep. And the idea of setting the alarm 30 minutes earlier so that we can spend time with God and His Word and in prayer is a struggle. It's a sacrifice. And we won't do it unless our love for the Lord surpasses our love for sleep. And this morning we read about the weightiest decision, the greatest test of loves in perhaps all of human history. Genesis 22, the question before Abraham here is actually a rather simple one, straightforward. God is essentially asking him, who do you love more, Isaac or me? Do you truly love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Are you willing to give up anything and everything for relationship with me? Or when the chips are on the table, will you choose your son, your only son, whom you love over me? And Abraham, who has failed God's test of faith before, in chapter 12, when he gave Sarai away to Pharaoh, who failed God's test in chapter 16 when he slept with Hagar, who failed the test in chapter 21 when he gave Sarah away again to Abimelech, when the stakes are the highest and it matters the most, Abraham gets it right. When, it, when the test is most difficult, Abraham rises to the occasion. Just read back over it with me and consider Abraham's test and his proven trust in the Lord. And as we do, you and I need to ask ourselves, when have I been tested in probably far smaller ways than this? And have I consistently passed those tests of faith? Verse 1, we hear, after these things, God tested Abraham. Now, we need to stop right there and recognize, we as the readers know right up front that this is just a test, Okay. God tips us off. We know that nothing is more abhorrent to, God, to the God of the Bible than child sacrifice, that Yahweh has no intention of asking Abraham to actually go through with this. But Abraham does not know that. He's got child sacrifice in his background when he was a pagan in Ur. So keep that in mind as you try and put yourself in Abraham's shoes here. And so often, the same holds true in our lives, doesn't it? So often we may only come to understand that God was testing us, what God was up to, why he allowed us to endure this trial after the fact. And sometimes he doesn't even give us a glimpse of that afterwards. But the question before you and me this morning, it's the same one that was before Abraham here, is not do I understand God's plan? The question is, will I submit to it? 
Will I trust God despite my understanding or not? Will I lean on Him for my strength? Another important point to note here, Satan doesn't make a cameo in this story at all. Sometimes in our misguided theological attempts to protect God's character, we Christians are guilty of attributing God's work to Satan. We say things like, I just lost my job. Satan is really trying to derail my faith right now. Maybe, or maybe God's trying to build your faith. I haven't been able to get to church in five months now with this coronavirus. Satan is really trying to attack the church right now. Maybe, or maybe God wants to prune the church. Maybe God is trying to refocus the church on our calling. Jesus didn't leave us to go and make enjoyable worship services. He didn't leave us to go and make fun kids programming. He said go and make disciples. We can do that virtually or in person. We should do that Sunday and Monday. We should do that in this building and in your neighborhoods, wherever you are joining us from your computer. Do we view trials as an obstacle or an opportunity? Will our suffering make us bitter or make us better? Do not forget the story of Job. Satan has to get permission from God for everything he does in this world, every little bit of havoc that he wants to wreak. God wants to use in our lives for our good and our growth. You say, wait a minute. Are you saying that God causes the evil that happens in the world? No. Scripture is clear. James 1.13 Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. God doesn't tempt us. God doesn't cause evil. Satan tempts us to try and bring out the worst in us. God tests us to bring out our best. God wants to purify and refine our faith. The Hebrew word here for tested is nasah. It means to prove the value or worth of something. God wants to prove Abraham's faith. Why? Because God is ignorant and doesn't know if Abraham really trusts him. Because God is insecure and doesn't believe that, God re that Abraham really loves him? No. It's because God is loving and he wants the absolute best for Abraham and he knows that the best is if Abraham will learn to have total confidence in God's unfailing promises and his character. We read on in verse 1, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And so the first test of Abraham's faith is his readiness. It's his responsiveness. When God calls, will Abraham be there on the other line to pick up? And three times in this chapter, Abraham repeats those three words. Here I am. I'm here, God. I'm ready. I'm listening. I'm waiting. I want to obey. Tell me what to do. How many of us will miss opportunities to have our faith tested and proved and improved and strengthened because we won't even hear the phone ringing. God is trying to call and he keeps getting the, I'm sorry, the number you have reached has a voice mailbox that has not yet been set up. Goodbye message. Is that what God gets when he's calling you? 
Because in the face of trials, we often opt for the world's response rather than God's. The world says, trials aren't fun, so avoid them at all costs. And if you can't avoid them, then at least try and ignore them by just passing the time. Here's a new app to keep you distracted. But God's Word says, make the most of the time because the days are evil. God's Word says, count it pure joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Brothers and sisters, are we merely trying to survive this pandemic, to wait it out? Are we redeeming the time? Are we praying for opportunities to have our faith tested so that it can be refined and strengthened. And then God extends the test in verse 2. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. And I ask you again this morning, friends, what do you love most in this life? Abraham loved Isaac more than anything. That is precisely why God called him to sacrifice Isaac. If he had loved Sarah more, God would have called her to kill him instead. Kill her instead. To test Abraham's devotion. See, that's the thing. God isn't just testing Abraham's faith in him in this story. He's he's testing Abraham's devotion to him. God wants to know not just, do you really believe the promises I've made to you, Abraham, to bless and prosper you, descendants as numerous as the stars. God also wants to know, Abraham, do you love me even more than you love those promises? I suspect for many of us this morning, if we were honest with ourselves, we first came to the Christian faith for the promises. We love the idea of eternal bliss in heaven more than the idea of intimacy with the ruler of it. We love the promise of all things working together for my good more than we even love the God who works them together that way. We've even developed whole theology centered around it. Promised blessings, the so-called prosperity gospel, just no gospel at all. God exists to make me healthy, wealthy, and happy. And in our preoccupation with the gifts, have we forgotten about the giver? What do you love most? For the rich young ruler, in Mark chapter 10, it was his stuff. That's precisely why God called him to sell it all and give the proceeds to the poor. It was a test. For another would-be disciple in Luke chapter 9, it was his family. That's why Jesus tested him. Said if it's more important to you to return home and give your family one last hug, one last kiss, than to drop everything at a moment's notice to follow me, to leave it all behind, not waste one more second of this life apart from me, then you are not worthy to be called my disciple. You don't get it yet. You don't understand how valuable I am. I am the pearl of great price. I am the treasure worth selling everything you own to buy the field. See, that's the thing. We still have to buy them. You get that? Jesus is not free. Salvation was not 
free. Salvation was the most costly gift of all time. It cost Jesus his perfect, precious life. And he is not peddling cheap grace. It will cost you your life. Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it. But, here's the good news, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And you have not lived until you've experienced life with Jesus. He is worth it. He's worth it. What do you love most? Your stuff? Your money? Your sense of security? Your job? Your lifestyle? Your comfort? Your vices? Your sinful indulgences? Your addiction? Your lust? Your pride? Your resentment that you refuse to let go of? Being right? Maybe yours are more socially acceptable idols. Your spouse? kids, even your self-respect, your integrity, the best virtues make for the worst idols because they're so subtle. How do you argue with the pursuit of integrity? Religion can be an idol. The pursuit of holiness can be an idol. How do you argue with wanting to be the best husband or father, wife or mother? The truth is that anything that takes God's rightful place of absolute and unrivaled centrality on the throne of our hearts is just that. It is a dangerous idol. It is a weed that threatens to choke out the beautiful seedling of faith that God has planted. And so for Abraham, if it's God or Isaac, the decision is clear. And we hear in verse 3, without any hesitation without a word of deliberation remember this is the same abraham who haggled with god back in chapter 18 over the sin of sodom you know how sinful do they really have to be before you but here there's no back and forth we hear unequivocally in verse 3 no argument abraham rose early in the morning he wanted to get a jump start on following god's extreme call to faith he saddled his donkey, he made the preparations, and he set out. And when they reached the foot of the mountain, verse 5, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we will come back again to you. We will return. Plural. But Abraham knows what God has called him to. To kill Isaac. So is, is Abraham just calling God's bluff here? Is this just lying old Abraham again, trying to keep his servants at bay from getting suspicious and trying to stop him? Or is it possible that Abraham has finally had a change of heart and is evidencing the kind of total trust and full-blown faith that God has been looking for from him and developing within him for four decades now. We don't have to guess because Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, 
Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. But he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Friends, you can say what you want about Abraham's failures before this, but in chapter 22, he serves as the paramount example of faith in all of Scripture. Like I know Daniel slept with lions, David fought giants, and Peter walked on water. But you, you, I will put my life at risk. You can take my life, but as a father, speaking as a father right now, do not mess with my kids. But Kent Hughes notes that in the face of losing his only son, whom he loved more than anything in the world, Abraham envisioned the doctrine of resurrection when as yet there had been nothing in history to suggest it. Never been a resurrection. In this way, Hughes notes, he began to see Christ's day. You remember the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees in John chapter 8? When Jesus said, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Jesus answered, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. In what way did Abraham see Jesus' day? Insofar as Abraham knew God's word was as good as gold, and so when God said, you're going to sacrifice Isaac for that entire three days journey that it took to get to Mount Moriah, Abraham considered Isaac as good as dead. And yet, he also trusted God's promise from back in chapter 17 to make of Abraham, a father of many nations, through Isaac, such that the only way that Abraham could logically square those two competing promises of God was to conclude that God would in fact allow Isaac to die, but then he'd just have to raise him from the dead. That was the most logical conclusion in Abraham's mind. Skip Heitzig says, what should we do when life gets illogical? says we need to get theological. You start reasoning based on God's character, on who you know God to be. And Abraham knew God to be utterly trustworthy, faithful. That's why he says again with full confidence in verse 8, he says, don't worry Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And in faith, Abraham climbs the mountain, he builds the altar, he lays the wood, he bound Isaac, he took the knife, and as he raised it, I have to believe, I want to believe in my own sinful shortcoming. Abraham was still human, so there had to at least be the briefest moment in time as it stood still that he paused and he wondered, is God worth it? What if he's been leading me on this whole time? And the way I envision this scene unfolding, it is at that exact moment. The moment before Abraham actually makes up his mind. No turning back. Just before he begins to bring the blade down toward Isaac's throat that Abraham hears. Before that, 
the voice from heaven, Abraham, and he drops the knife. Because I will just speak for myself personally this morning. And I will admit that if I have to ace God's test of faith, if my idol was on the altar, I, I already told you, I feel the weight of this passage. Anyone who's a parent in this room should feel the weight of this passage. I thought I had idols until I had kids. I'll just use Ellery because for years she was my only child. I like to think that I've got the faith to make the journey, the faith to climb a mountain, the faith to bind her, build the altar, maybe even raise the blade. But when I look in my daughter's eyes, I can tell you with almost certain confidence that in that moment, if God is waiting on me to come to the point of resolve in my heart to make that decision and choose him over her and begin the, the dreadful plunge of the knife toward my daughter's throat, if he's waiting for me for that, I am in trouble. I'm in trouble. I don't have the faith for that. I just confess, as, my, as your pastor, I do not have the faith Maybe Abraham did. Maybe you do. Maybe you think you do. Maybe it's easy to believe you do until the knife is in your hand. But I know in my own feeble, fallible, fallen, short, faithlessness, I want to believe that God, His securing of His promises, in my own life, does not ultimately rest in my faith in Him, but in His faithfulness to me. 2 Timothy 2.13, even if we are faithless, He will remain faithful. And friends, the proof of God's unwavering faithfulness to us is His provision of His own Son. Jesus Christ. That is theological indicative. Number two, this story functions on two levels. It's a story that happened 4,000 years ago, and it's a story that is a prefiguring, a pointing forward ahead to another better story in the grander story of redemption, God's story. Theological indicative number two is that God has provided for us in His only Son, Jesus, and we have to look to Him for our eternal hope and security. Sometimes it's hard to find the Christ connection in some of these Old Testament passages. Like, where is Jesus in the Tower of Babel, in the sin of Sodom? It's really easy here, isn't it? I mean, it just jumps off the page if you are a believer we ought to catch the subtle prophetic language in this story. Did you notice that Abraham prophesied, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. But wait a minute, it was a ram, not a lamb that appeared in verse 13. Did you notice in verse 14, said Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. Future tense. Why? Would it make more sense to name it the Lord has provided? 
listen, here's the point. If we think the hero of this story is Abraham, and the point is that we have to muster up the faith to be like him and to ace all of our tests of faith in order for God to accept us, then friends, you and I are in trouble. We are in trouble and we will miss the point of the story. The good news is that this story points us ahead. We need a better Abraham who showed God the Father the faith that you and I so often fail to. We need a better Isaac and God has provided him for us. Just think of all the connections to Isaac. Another miracle baby born not just to a 99-year-old father but to no human father. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Another long-awaited heir whose name and arrival had been prophesied years before his birth. Another only son, God's only son, who God loved more than anything. Biblical scholars will tell you the first time a word or a concept shows up in Scripture, pay attention, it's really important. Genesis 22 verse 2 is the first time the word love appears in the Bible. And what is the context? It is a father's love for his only son who is about to be sacrificed. And where is he going to die? Verse 2, Mount Moriah. Anyone want to guess where Mount Moriah is located? It's the mountain that David would purchase in 2 Chronicles 3.15, where Solomon would later build the temple on the ridge of mountains running through Jerusalem, the pinnacle of which, the highest point, the highest mountain in the range is Golgotha, overlooking the temple, overshadowing the temple because someone greater than the temple would come who would fulfill God's righteous demands for sacrifice once and for all, shut down the temple system, and tear the temple curtain. Like Isaac, he would carry the wood for his own sacrifice on his back up the hill. Like Isaac, who saw the writing on the wall and questioned his father, my father, where is the lamb? So too would Jesus ask his father, why have you forsaken me? And yet, like Isaac, who was able-bodied, he was a teenager at the time, he could have easily just run away and escaped, but instead, he trusted his father and submitted to him. He voluntarily stepped on that altar Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Like Isaac, he, was, he voluntarily bore the knife and the fire, God's symbolic wrath against sin, his just punishment of it, respectively. Jesus is the answer to Isaac's question in verse 7. Where is the lamb? John the Baptist answered that question for us 2,000 years later. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus fulfilled Abraham's prophecy in verse 8 that God will provide for himself the Lamb. It was to appease God's own wrath against sin, his own just demand that Jesus endured the cross for us. And like Isaac, who was as good as dead in Abraham's mind for three days on that journey, this Lamb of God would go into the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. But as Abraham prophesied of Isaac, when he said, we will come back to you, God would not just figuratively raise his own son from the dead because his was not a near sacrifice. We, we sometimes refer to this story as the sacrifice of Isaac. It's not really an appropriate title. He wasn't sacrificed the near sacrifice of Isaac, the almost sacrifice of Isaac. 
This is where the comparisons with Jesus end. Because God didn't nearly sacrifice his only son for you, friends. He didn't almost offer up his only son for you. Romans 8.32 says, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Why did he do it? John 3.16. You all know it. Why did he do it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So I ask you this morning, friends, what do you love most in life? What is relationship with Jesus worth to you? It cost him everything, and it will cost you everything. But life with Jesus will afford you everything. He's worth it. Will you look to him and trust in him this morning? Let's pray.